Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Nigren. Today, I'll be talking with Emily Wakehild and Michelle Berry about their new book, A Primer for Teaching Environmental History, 10 Design Principles. Emily is Professor of History and Director of Environmental Studies at Boise State University. Michelle is Assistant Professor of Practice in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and a lecturer in the History Department at the University of Arizona. Emily and Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. I'm wondering if we could begin um, just by maybe telling us a little bit about yourselves, how you came to be teachers and scholars. And Emily, why don't we start with you? Sure. I... I think that I be, I have always been an environmental historian. Mm. I think I could say that. I think my interests have always sort of blended that way. But I think I really became one um, after my undergraduate degree. I joined a program called Teach for America. Mm. And I taught um, in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I taught science and social studies to sixth graders. And the pairing of science and social studies wasn't something that happened a lot mm. in undergraduate experiences. But for sixth grade, it really allowed me to explore the ways that science and social science complement each other. And so I think that primed me to head to graduate school with that blending already in my mind. Mm -hmm. I went to graduate school because I was obsessed with Latin America and I wanted to study social revolution and social change. And so it wasn't until I got there that I knew that there was something called environmental history Mm. and sort of started to pursue that direction. Um, But I think that exposure came from the blending and and really, at least in my story, through through teaching and being able to teach both the science objectives and social science and geography objectives allowed me to kind of explore those relationships in a way that was not academic, but that exposed the ways they bleed into each other. Mm -hmm. And I think my uh, path began in sixth grade <laughs> or maybe before. I grew up in rural Western Colorado uh, in the 70s and 80s and not, you know, not only being part of sort of an agricultural community, but also um, living in a place where there wasn't much to do in terms of recreation and and leisure other than play in the out of doors. And so I, mm. I came into undergraduate school at Colorado College heavily steeped in my own personal relationships with the non-human world. And then I got there and I think I probably wanted to do science. I may be a little bit like Emily um, and decided that I wasn't really keen on, you know, taking organic mm-hmm. chemistry or some of those <laughs> other bears of classes. Uh, and I discovered uh, Anne Hyde at Colorado College who said to me, you know, there's this thing called environmental history. Mm-hmm. And I was sold. So from that point forward, I, so I pretty much studied environmental U.S. West history even in, as an undergraduate. And then when I was looking for graduate schools, really wanted a, a program that offered me the opportunity to work with folks who were in that field. And University of Arizona was where I landed and how I met Emily Wakefield. Yay. <laughs> Yay. 
Yeah, your your the your relationship and your your friendship, I think, uh, really does shine through uh, in this book uh, throughout, uh, from you know cover to cover. So I'm wondering, how could you tell me a little bit about how this came, book came about? How did you get the idea to um, collaborate on uh, a book about uh, teaching environmental history? That's a great question. And I wish we, this is Emily again, um, and I wish we could take credit for the idea, <laughs> but it is actually an idea that belongs to Antoinette Burton, who authored a primer for teaching world history with Duke. And she did it out of a sort of need to share her experience teaching a 100 level intro world history class as they became more and more common. And after she did it, Duke was just floored by how well it sold and how much interest there was in it. Mm. And so she asked if she could um, turn it into a series. And she knew that she wanted in the series one of the first books to be environmental. And um, I didn't realize it, but she had me out to Illinois, the University of Illinois, um, to run a workshop with teachers. And mm. that was, I think, my interview for, <laughs> the, for the book. And it turns out I I, I passed. <laughs> so after the the Saturday morning workshop with the teacher, she, she asked if I'd be interested in the idea. And I was seven months pregnant at the time. Mm. And while I love the idea, I also... Um, wasn't sure that I could do it alone. And I immediately thought of Michelle. I think I texted her um, right after that conversation and said, I have a proposal for you. And um, I think that there is this kind of, um, what was compelling about Antoinette's pitch was that this is a space that historians should be writing in, that mm. there is scholarly writing about you know research, but there is not scholarly research-informed writing about teaching, mm -hmm. and that there should be that um, new scholars need it, scholars that are entering into a new field need it, and it's a place where um, historians have a lot to say, but they haven't generally had um, credit given for doing it. You know, it's not a sure. thing that people count on tenure profiles, and it's not something that we're asked to do. And I immediately thought of collaborating with Michelle as I was a TA in one of her environmental history classes mm. at the University of Arizona, and how fun that was, and how much we both learned from each other. Yeah. And um, and so I asked if if she, she would um, join in that. And I would like to say also that um, I think that there's this general insecurity about writing about teaching, I mean, mm -hmm. and talking about teaching in general, but especially writing about it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we tried to do in the book is just sort of open it up as a process and not a definitive way, but as a, a place where all teaching improves when it's nested within a community. Right. And Michelle and I have relied on each other for that community for years but we hadn't thought about what it would be like to bring other people into that conversation. And so I think we thought about the book as a platform for potentially doing that. Yeah, I, I would just add that I, you know, had my my interview for the for the book offer in the early 2000s mm -hmm. and I passed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I thought I, I ended up not going on the higher education job market after graduating with my Ph.D. and ended up teaching. Um, secondary at an independent high school here in town, mm -hmm. juniors and seniors, and it was a academically rigorous college prep school. And so I really, for the last you know decade, well, the last 20 years, but really, uh, really intensively for a decade, spent time full time in the classroom. And right. so when Emily asked, I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. This is just going to be fun to, to think about in a more systematic way 
the experiences and the thoughts and the ideas that I've generated over over a decade in the classroom full time. So that was cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, this your both of your your love for teaching and um, this kind of I, I think you do a really good job of, uh, as Emily said, sort of sort of demystifying the process, but also making the reader feel okay to take a risk and to risk failure. <laughs> um, that really comes <laughs> through in this book. And it's really, there's a, the book is filled with the sort of sense of invitation um, for readers to participate, to take risks, but also participate with you, with the two of you in the, the pedagogical process. And you do write, you write, uh, pedagogy is a process or a shared endeavor. So I'm wondering... How did you approach this book in terms of, you know, what are, what did you intend, uh, how do you intend readers to use this book, uh, to read the book? And then uh, stemming from that, you know, how did that sort of approach to the book itself influence the way you wrote about it, whether, you know, what sort of things you emphasized or the sort of contents that you highlighted and so on? This is Michelle. I can start this one. I, I think that one of the challenges for us in writing the book was that Antoinette Burton uh, wanted the book to not just reach professors in higher education, but Mm -hmm. also reach high school educators. Um, And so thinking about audience and thinking about all the different classrooms in which this book might, you know, sort of inform best practices was Mm -hmm. probably early on. One of our earliest conversations was how do we strike how do we reach out to that vast audience um, of differentiated classrooms and, and, right. and speak a little bit to everybody? Um, and so one of the emphases of the book and one of the intentions of the book is that it's useful to practitioners of education in, in a lot of different um, school settings. Um, and so we're, we're, we've heard, I've worked with some high school educators, thanks to the amazing Flannery Burke right there in, in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, those were high school educators and they were super jazzed up about, about the ideas and what have you. And so um, I, I think thinking about audience in that way informed a lot of the kind of um, assignments and activities we discussed, but also mm-hmm. informed the ways in which we talked about environmental history content, because we didn't want to just speak to specialists mm-hmm. of any particular area of environmental history. And we also didn't want to talk to specialists in any particular area of of education. And so because of that, you know, so then it was like this, oh, is this too general? And, you know, is this going to be useful for anybody? Are we watering it down too much? And so that was something we struggled with throughout the writing. And that's why it was super cool to be collaborative because we could kind of bounce stuff off of each other. Um, And so the intention is that lots of people can use this book in lots of different ways. And I would add to that, that, um, to, to sort of compliment what Michelle said, that, that both of us see environmental history everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> you know, even if what we're teaching is not, a, you know, if I'm teaching a class on Latin American social change, well, <laughs> embedded within that is the access to resources, especially land, right? right? And so we wanted to help other people to kind of see it in that way as well. And so this framework of environmental history as, as separate was um, something that we wanted to try and break down with both the structure of the book mm-hmm. pitched at people that might be teaching, as as you said, Josh, a class on environmental history, but also those that might be looking for some sort of unit or module or even just, you know, one monograph to put in an upper mm-hmm. division class on a different topic. And so we wanted to, to help other people use it in that way as well. 
I think, yeah, I think all of this really um, is evident in the book. You know, this is a book you could sit down and read cover to cover, or you can kind of take it off the shelf as needed. And, you know, I've got a lesson plan on this. I'm planning my syllabus and I need to cover that. Um, and I think it, 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 it helps whether you're kind of building something from the ground up or rebuilding something from the ground up or just trying to, as you say, like uh, add a little bit of environmental history into existing courses. Um, <clears throat> Um, and one, I guess one of the, I see in the structure of the book, you, you know, the beginning, you're, you're really talking about, you know, approaching the course, you're talking about uh, designing it, like what sort of general principles, how are you going to conceive of the course as a whole? And then you end sort of with assessment. Um, uh, so it's kind of taking the arc of, of a course in many, uh, 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 many ways. Um, so starting with these tips and principles for designing a course, um, one of the key considerations that you argue is that early on, the, early on in the course, a lot of educators might need to convince students that environmental history matters, that it's relevant. So I'm wondering if you could explain some of the strategies that you found useful uh, in conveying that and, and, and um, convincing students. Yeah, I think... Michelle and I both share an approach to teaching that meets students where they are mm. and um, helps them to get to a place where we think they should they should go. And I think part of that is showing them how environmental history is relevant in their daily lives. Um, and again, this this idea that we see it everywhere, but it's helping to student to helping students who, who don't necessarily see it everywhere. And um, so one of the examples we use in the book is the banana, right? Mm. And, you know, entering students' lives through their diet, through mm. what they eat, and showing them how that banana isn't just, you know, something that appears, but it has a really fascinating transnational environmental history that helps them kind of understand the, the ecological moment that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say on this on this point, and I'm sure Michelle has more to say about some of the um, some of the strategies as well, but there are some things that we wanted the book not to be. And I think that there was potential that the book could have been sort of a different class in each chapter, you know, a class Mm. on U.S. environmental history, a class on global. And we really tried to not make it that because Mm -hmm. that's just sort of going over a syllabus. And one of the things that we have a lot of access to is other people's syllabi. But what we don't talk about is what's behind the syllabi and what choices go into that and how you translate that syllabus into in-class activities and assignments and interactions with students that are meaningful. Um, And so we really endeavored to try and structure the book and to offer strategies that kind of run the whole gamut, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of describe a a semester-long research assignment but to also describe how it is you set up a discussion mm-hmm. and the ways you facilitate that discussion in a way that gets them to a place in environmental history that they didn't walk in the door anticipating they would get to. Right. And so that's certainly one of the strategies is to think about just the mechanics and the pedagogy of, of teaching in a way that isn't laid bare on a syllabus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I won't add much more to that other than to say that I think the strategy is local and personal for, mm. for me in terms of trying to get them to understand students to understand relevance. And, and sometimes that means having, asking them to do just a quick, short kind of activity around um, their local place, if that's available, 
But, you know, sometimes it's just really about you don't have to necessarily think historically. You can just think about your right now. Like, look at your iPhone and let's figure out, you know, what what invite what what part of non-human nature goes into making that thing? Mm-hmm. And what is it you you know, how is it connected in this wider, wider way to nature, for lack of a better word? And of course, that's a that's a complicated term, in which we try to always complicate in our classes. But sure. but that even just that, because some of them have never once thought about it. They've never thought about silicon. Right. They've never once thought about sort of the coal powered, you know, uh, plant that 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 powers your that recharges your, your phone at night. They don't think about any or where that coal comes from or they don't think about any of that stuff. So even just starting there and then thinking historically and thinking about the his, the pasts involved in all that, it makes their understanding of the iPhone richer and richer. But we just start right where they are. Like, look mm-hmm. at that thing sitting in front of you and let's think about how that sort of um it involves nature in a variety of different ways. And that right there can just start them thinking about the environment, which is a term they hear all the time, mm-hmm. really differently. And it makes it suddenly very personal to them. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the emphasis on meeting students where they are and uh, kind of making things personal, I think, is is something that I've I, I took away from your book. I've uh, used this book. I read it last summer and used it to restructure my course this uh, wrapping up this semester. And, um, you know, it, it is it does have uh, quite a bit of payoff uh, when you make that something that you do intentionally. Emily, you mentioned that uh, the importance of kind of uh, structuring your course. Uh, intentionally, where you you connect the learning outcomes, you connect the skill-based objectives to the class activities. I'm wondering if you could give a sense of a couple of the ways that either of you have, you know, applied those general pedagogical principles in an environmental history course. Yeah, so... um... So one of the main contributions, in my view, of environmental history is deep attention to change over time. And change over time happens in almost every context and, and, you know, sort of any history class. But environmental history asks us to go back, in some cases, even to the Pleistocene. Mm. And I think entering that familiarity with scales in the natural world that don't necessarily map perfectly onto scales in the human world Mm -hmm. is one of those places and one of those opportunities where we can connect this sort sort of larger learning outcome of change over time, for example, with an understanding of um, the the geological and biophysical cycles of the world. And um, one place where, you know, I do it in a number of classes is through animals. And we have a separate chapter on animals. And that's the one exception to the book where there's a chapter built around one particular class. Mm. Um, And that's, largely excused by my obsession right now. <laughs> it's come of the place sort of with animals and animal, animal history. And, and She's obsessed. Thing, but, <laughs> I am so obsessed. <laughs> Llamas, beavers, whatever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All of them. Um, but, I mean, I do think that that, that is a, a place. That the food is the same way, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about the strategy of the banana, but I think animals also help us meet students where they are. Mm-hmm. And it allows them to encounter another living being that they're familiar with, but they've never thought about historically. And so that becomes an interesting um, mm-hmm. entry point. So, for example, for the change over time objective, having them consider debates 
that were ferocious among scientists starting in the 1960s about the the um, die off of Pleistocene megafauna, mm-hmm. and so I you know assign them and have them read some of those original um, articles, and then we divide up into a debate and and try and figure out you know was it overkill, was it overkill, was it over um, ill, was mm-hmm. it disease, you know what are the the, the reasons why these animals no longer roam. Um, uh, the world. And that becomes a sort of way of fusing those timescales that allows us to have evidence-based arguments, but not necessarily consensus. And I hope, and and I I see that as um, one of the ways of fusing sort of the skills of critical reading and understanding evidence with this sort of larger um, outcome of understanding change over time. Yeah, I would just add, um, the student-centered classroom, I know that's super trendy, and sometimes I don't think we even know really what that means, but I consistently hear from my students um, how radically different a classroom is in which they get to talk things out and in which they get to um, explore ideas uh, with one another in a variety of ways, whether it's partnerships, whether it's small group settings, whether it's uh, even even collaborative writing, um, you know, being able to connect with one another to make sense of, of the history and the world is really meaningful for students. And I think it helps them always reach my learning objectives, which include critical reading, critical writing, and critical communication. Mm-hmm. And so that, that student-centered classroom, that ability to let them find their voices in trying to make sense of all this stuff, rather than just them sitting there listening to information or even just absorbing information from reading, right? And then trying to spit back the right answer or to right. show comprehension. I also want them to problem solve. I want them to um, get together with others to make sense of complicatedness. And they appreciate that. And I think the key to that is just to consistently have a student-centered classroom in which every day the activities are centered around meeting those objectives. And so I'm not much on, you know, I, there's a place for lecture, but I think... Mm. The more roundtable stuff you can do, the more common readings in common and then coming in and sorting out the problems that are involved in those texts, reading against the grain of the text, looking for non-human actors in texts that we traditionally take as being very political, right? Like mm-hmm. the Guano Islands Act, which is what I'm going to teach this coming semester, mm-hmm. right? There's really interesting. That's all about diplomacy. It's often taught that way, but it's also all about fertilizer and right. agriculture and, and the non-human world and collecting bat poop, you know? And right. so it's like, Let's read against the grain and see what else is going on. And, and to do that collaboratively, I think, helps reach the skill-based objectives that I think are really powerful and meaningful and maybe the most important thing students can get out of a history classroom. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and for, for listeners, some of the, the strategies that, um, that um, Michelle just mentioned, like readings in the round and round tables and things like that, those are elaborated a little bit more in the book. So I do encourage people to pick up a copy and read it because there's a lot of useful uh, uh, strategies and principles to, to take away. Um, earlier, earlier, we were talking about you know, how do we, on the one hand, you can, there's uh, ideas here for helping people design an entire course or uh, just a, a specific class period. But there's also this uh, idea of, well, what if I'm not teaching an environmental history course, but I want to bring environmental history in? So what are some of the ways that you've, uh, you recommend doing so? Some of the principles, um, do you invite people to make their own? 
Yeah, I, you know, I just wrote for the American Historian from the Organization of American Historians um, a piece in their September issue mm. about just this, about oh. how do you take, for me as a U.S. historian, how do you take a U.S. survey, for example, and infuse it with some environmental history, right, you know, without having to blow the whole thing up and, and redo it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just really about the way that you view the world. Emily started out I think, the podcast by saying, she and I see environmental history and, and nature or the environment everywhere in, yeah. in all things. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you already teach about Henry Ford more than likely in a U.S. survey course. Mm. So then just adjusting the lens through which you see that Ford moment um, can bring in all kinds of really interesting discussions about public health with flooded gas that arrives in the 1920s and thinking about, um, you know, the sourcing of the raw materials that are required to go into the automobile industry. And then you could think about space and the requirement of roads and what that does environmentally mm. as interstates and highways are built over time from the 20s through the, you know, through today. Mm. Um, and so that just sort of that kind of thing where, where just, just do what you do and then pick, you know, pick a couple of really key moments when the environment is really for lack of a better word, simple to see mm. and bring that to your students. And pretty soon, I think you'll start seeing it everywhere and it will just become just like a really great history class includes race and class and gender environment will start to um, be more present in your, in your, in your syllabus and in your classroom. Right. And I would add to this that, um, you know, when we were writing the book, I was not in an environmental studies program. Hmm. Um, and now I'm a director of a program. And over the past two years, we've gone through this process of completely revising our program learning outcomes and redoing and adding a core curriculum. And and so if if I went back and, you know, sort of thought about our book again, I would add a component here that's about environmental history in non-history classes. Hmm. Oh, right. Um, because I really think it's essential and I see it everywhere. And I think that that's another extension of this conversation. But when we were writing, we were thinking about how often one person in a department doesn't have the authority to change, you know, the way the intro course works or, um, you know, the, how the surveys are taught in terms of the, the, um, years they cover or the geographical reach, but that there often are these entry points, um, many of them comparative, that make a lot of sense from an environmental history perspective. So, for example, I used to teach in um, the Americas in World History class that was mm-hmm. mandated, right? It was something that I would teach. And most of the people that taught it were U.S. historians. So mm-hmm. as a Latin Americanist, I already had a different perspective. Right. But one of the um, comparative case studies I, I developed in there was between the Maya and the Vikings, Mm. both of whom were affected by climate and both of them, you know, had their civilizations sort of interrupted by um, natural phenomenon or sort of climate phenomenon. And it was a comparison that, that, you know, sort of doesn't enter into many traditional history classes. Um, but it was one that was really fruitful for the students and it was useful for me thinking about, huh, mm. <laughs> what did the Vikings and the, and the Maya have in common? Um, yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you, I, I think that there is something in in this book though for um, people, you know, not teaching in a history class or maybe, at the very least, you know, collaboratively teaching. Um, the the book t- talks about ways that I think you put it at one point something along the lines of how instructors can bring students to the field 
but also bring the field to students, kind of referring to the ways in which um, you can teach history students more science, but also maybe encourage uh, majors in the sciences to learn more history. So um, how, do you, how are ways that you've um, been able to do that? And what are some of the benefits that, that you know, students gain from that? Yeah. And, um, and yeah, we have the whole chapter on, on the field, right. Mm -hmm. And the field in its dual meanings, both of other fields like biology or ecology or literature, but also, um, the field like going out, um, and into it. And I would say that, that, um, I now intentionally in all my environmental studies classes build in a site visit to mm. something that we're studying. And I started doing it with the animals course where we took a, um, a, a backdoor tour or a, um, I'm sorry, a backstage tour of the zoo mm. and, you know, had a sort of um, a, a walk through the, the dietitian and all the veterinarians and sort of the logistics of the zoo. And then I've been teaching a class um, that has a, has a component on brownfields and urban remediation. Mm. And so we did a site visit and we toured both with an Idaho Department of Environmental Quality expert and the owner, what happened to turn a former meth house into a mm. children's theater wow. location. <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, with almost without exception, there are students that say that for them was what brought it to life or sort of made mm. it happen. And actually seeing things is not the same as reading the documents and right. reading the report. And by going to the site and seeing it, it sort of brings all of those readings into focus. And I think that that is um, essential to do in history classes where students can become distant from um, either geographically or sort of um, mentally or ethically from what their subjects are. And I think that in almost any class, there is a way of doing that. And it's more work. I mean, <laughs> there's logistics that are involved. You know, it is you you have to plan. There's always students that can't make it. And there, there's, but it it far outweighs the challenges um, mm. by giving them those actual experiences. Yeah, I would just add too that um, if, if you're teaching in a school or in a setting where a site visit like that is not possible, um, which is true for a lot of people, mm. um, you know, if hopefully, you know, a lot of people also don't have access to to really good fast internet. But if you do have a digital capacity to get students into the field digitally, mm. there's so especially for U.S. history, other places too, but especially U.S. history, there's so much. Um, compelling, awesome stuff online that students can go, you know, sort of immerse themselves in a photo, in a photographic essay of the Great Plains, for example, mm. and then go to the Smithsonian Institute that has an amazing online exhibit about the buffalo, including sort of indigenous people's uh, renderings of buffalo and storytelling about mm. buffalo. And then you can have them read, you know, sort of a modern you know, historian like Dan Flores writing about what actually killed the buffalo sure. and thinking also about you know, pairing that with a with a bigger, bigger discussion of something like the railroad coming and Mark Feige. Mm. And then you do all that stuff. And all of a sudden, students, the reading of those texts are infused with, um, you know, sort of a multimodal experience for students. And this is especially true as we move more into online education. I teach a little bit online. I don't mm -hmm. love it, be honest with you. But <laughs> th there is something about forcing online students to actually, you know, sort of 
not just be so text heavy, but to go look at images online mm. and that the internet provides us so many opportunities for that, that I think sometimes we overlook as historians because we are so text specific. Um, and I think that, that I think it just makes it all a little bit more, like Emily said, a little bit more real for students, even though they themselves can't necessarily go walk around in the Great Plains right. or go touch a buffalo. You know, they can at least sort of begin to see it in a way that simply reading a secondary source or maybe even a smattering of primary sources doesn't necessarily bring it home in quite the same way as as the visual part of it. And so I think I think digital um possibilities abound and we should take advantage of those as much as we can especially for students in classrooms that are not quite as mobile as they are at at boise state which is such a such a privilege and a gift that emily has right i would completely echo with what michelle said and because she's reminded me of this one of the things we did was videotape the site visit yeah and make a series of youtube videos out of it and so you know it's a class that is a core class and will be taught every semester. I can't ask those community partners to give us a tour every semester, right? right. right? They have full-time jobs. Okay. And so they did it this time. And now the students can go there virtually. Yeah. And next semester we'll do a site visit somewhere else and videotape that oh, cool. until we have this sort of um, buildup of those, those resources in which we can share. You know, talking about technology, um, uh, you, you know, you're kind of you're discussing ways that technology can uh, that you found ways to use technology to deliver the content of environmental history. But I think there's also some more. Uh, you, you also discuss some of the ways that technology can, um, you know, just improve the teaching, whether it's an environmental history class or not. You know, something that um, you, you discuss is the use of the use of Twitter, for instance, to um, encourage students to. Uh, ask questions and, you know, kind of make sure that they're um, they're taking away what you hope they take away. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment on some of the, the, the other side of um, bringing more technology into the classroom. You want to start this one in? No. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were the genius behind the technology chapter. <laughs> and uh, I learned it all from you. So. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> well, so, yeah, it's funny. I'm, you know, I'm part of a learning, a faculty learning community at, at the U of A this semester. And we've had, we've had several conversations about technology in the classroom. And I am the lone, I'm the lone voice in the group about allowing technology in the classroom, oh. having students on their phones using their laptops, doing stuff in the classroom. So, of course, right now I'm feeling um, uncertain about my convictions. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I have found um, Google Docs is a godsend um, for collaborative work um, for a variety of reasons. One, students themselves can collaborate, and it doesn't matter how busy they are or what time their different jobs are and all that stuff. They mm-hmm. can still write stuff and create collaborative projects together via Google Docs uh, in really really important ways. Um, and that's really kind of available to anybody. So that's really cool. And then the, as the professor, you can be in on that and see the work and see the evolution of it. And this is, so that's, it takes quite a bit of effort to do that, but it's totally worth it. And it pays off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then helping students for me, part of this is about sort of my political objectives in the classroom. Mm. And I'm not ashamed to say that I have them because I do want to, I do want citizen education to be a little bit stronger than maybe it is at the moment. Right. Um, for folks in in the United States. And I think teaching students how to use Snapchat and Twitter in ways that are productive and somewhat intellectually deeper than just kind of the, 
you know, more cultural and, and leisurely recreational fun ways that they use it, that it can also be a real tool for intellectual sharing um, is powerful for them. And they, and they often come in, at least my students have come into my classroom, and this was true when I taught high school also, thinking about Snapchat or Twitter or any of those things as sort of um, either play spaces or spaces where cruelty happens, mm -hmm. where it's not generative and not uh, spaces where we can build our, a better a better society and, and build better selves. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the objective in using Twitter and doing all of that stuff is not only to check in on whether or not they're quote unquote, you know, engaging and getting what we're talking about in class, but also to think about how they can interact and interface with these kinds of technologies when they go out into the world and into their personal lives well beyond the semester or the term that, that we're together. And so mm -hmm. I use them and I mean, I'm not being very specific about specific assignments that I do because sure. they're kind of detailed, but right. that's, that's the, that's sort of my pedagogical principle behind it is that I think it's something they use anyway. It's something they're often really familiar with. So it feels like kind of comfortable and cool for them to be able to interact with technology and with each other through technological means. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, I think, again, it just sort of enriches the classroom in ways that is familiar to most of the, uh, most of the traditional students sitting in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. And that helps them, it helps sort of demystify the learning experience because they're doing it, it, it through a venue that they're used to, if that makes, if that makes, if I'm making any sense. I've had yeah. students use blogs, right? Blogs are super powerful and cool. I've had students, my big thing right now is digital story maps. Hmm. They're all about, I mean, this is, these are the coolest things ever. You know, just Adobe Spark is pretty easy to use. And then you've got this movement in the presentations and movement. So we're taking, I'm asking them to write an academic essay and then translate it into a digital story hmm. so that other people can see it. And that's been really powerful and cool. And they like that creative, that, that opportunity to be creative. So it hits different learners differently. There are those who've mastered the academic arts, you know, of writing formal essays. And then there are those who are just like, I just can't do that. I just don't like doing it. It's not my skill set. And so right. this way they have to write an academic essay and work on something that challenges them, but then they get their creative, you know, create creative mojo going on. Mm -hmm. And, and so in all those ways, I think it's a, just a different way for them to continue to demonstrate their learning um, and interact with one another and the outside world in ways that are um, compelling and that hold them accountable in, in ways that sort of the private aspect of right. simple essay writing doesn't necessarily do. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. I, uh, this, this semester, I'm having my environmental history students, I gave them the option of a traditional essay or, or an online essay where they you know, write something shorter, but they, they build a website. And uh, mm -hmm. you're right, there's something about the digital that really appeals to them. The vast majority of my students chose to do a website. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, they're, they're coming in this week, so I haven't uh, had a chance to look at them yet. But um, from what I've seen, like they really put a lot into it. Like it's something that kind of does tap into the sort of stuff that they're used to getting back to kind of meeting students where they are, but, um, also kind of maybe, uh, sparks the, like their creativity in ways that maybe that traditional essay doesn't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I would also say that, um, we said at the outset that a lot of faculty don't talk about their teaching. They sort of feel insecure or don't feel that they would get support or advice and perhaps be sort of ridiculed. And I would say that technology is an enormous space of vulnerability mm. for Ooh, faculty. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you heard me at the beginning, right? I just demonstrated it. No, I don't want to talk about it. 
<laughs> well, and me too, because I'm in that faculty learning community and they're all like, no, there are no phones in my classroom. I'm like, oh my God, am I doing this wrong? Right. <laughs> and, and I would say that I have found that with students, admitting that vulnerability is actually a way of enhancing the confidence of our students. And so it's a way of sort of believing in the capacity of our students to adapt mm -hmm. and also allowing ourselves that generosity and that space to do it as well. Um, I have a colleague who's a graphic designer and, you know, he is he's much younger than I am and he did not get his degree that long ago. But everything he learned is now obsolete. Mm. Right. And so every sort of new design software is something he has to learn with his students. And mm. I don't think those of us that are historians, right, for the for the reason that we like things that are analog and antiquated mm. and everything else, <laughs> we are less likely to 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 sort of say, oh, I don't know how this works. Let's learn it together and let's yeah. kind of explore it together. Mm -hmm. And Adobe Spark, I think that Michelle's doing is an amazing place for that. ArcGIS Story Maps yep, yep. is something that, you know, wasn't available five years ago, but it's another website formula, like you were talking about, Josh, to mm -hmm. have our students think about what audience beyond just their professor, they can express the new ideas that they've learned for. And I think that's the power of technology. And I think it is a, a, a really empowering place to set students up for um, sort of future lives of public service or of, right. of sort of dedication to a community. Right. And I appreciate what you said about basically modeling vulnerability, because I think too often when we, when we feel insecure, we kind of, we, we wall up and, you know, become resistant to, to meeting students where they are. But once we show them that it's okay to say, I don't know something and to work on it. Um, that's always beneficial for everyone. Um, and it, some of the, uh, Michelle, you, you mentioned like not shying away from having some political objectives in your class. And I think one of the areas of the book where we see that is, you know, you kind of uh, lay out in global context and American context ways in which you can integrate more uh, direct engagement with environmental justice into a curriculum. Um, you know, real briefly, I'm wondering, you know, what, uh, how you've, how you, maybe a couple ways that you've done that or a way, a single way and, you know, how that's worked. Go ahead, Michelle. <laughs> Go ahead. You, no, I, I took the last one first. Okay. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, when we were laying out the agenda for the book and sort of thinking about different categories and different chapters, we literally had environmental justice in every chapter. Mm. Um, you know, and so for both of us, it's something that we couldn't envision teaching an environmental class without and um, without at least uh, consideration of race, class, and gender, and, you know, age and experience and power and the way that those result in either um, disproportionate um, uh, effects of um, environmental toxicity or in, you know, sort of the lack of access to the things that make a life sustainable. And so we could see it everywhere, but we also wanted to name it. Mm -hmm. And we decided really deliberately to name it in conjunction with some radical pedagogical techniques, which are, as Michelle mentioned earlier, student-centered, mm -hmm. but really project-based and problem-based learning are one of the most powerful ways, we think, of providing students the opportunity to not just sort of explore the intellectual arena of environmental justice, but to actually think about 
um, improving their own um, problem solving techniques and capacities in a place that that um, allows them the space to do it and that is still kind of grounded in um, works of historical um, significance and and historical training and so we pair those in the chapter the idea of having a project in your class that's student driven and mm. also exploring the field of environmental justice um, through that project is a really sort of powerful way if you have space mm -hmm. in your curriculum or you can you know manage to cut out things that that give you the room to do it that it can be one of those things that is unforgettable right. for students yeah one of the it was interesting one of the things that has stuck with me from readers reports in writing the book early on was this question about i think it was about this particular chapter but maybe just in general sort of this this question about whether or not what we advocate for in a lot of places in the book is actually quote unquote history, mm. right? And that at what point are you no longer doing history when you're having students look at current environmental justice issues and asking them to come up with policy ideas for how to prevent future environmental injustices and mm. how to rectify the ones that have already happened. And, um, you know, that's just a matter of, of your preference, I think. And I think for Emily and I both, History is is best when it's applied. And so if you've done a good job throughout your course of getting students to think um, complexly and, and analytically about past moments of environmental injustices mm -hmm. um, and change and just even just change over time, whether that, you know, perspectives that was that was progress, that was declension, all those historiographical questions. When you get students, if you're doing that for two or three months, you're you're building them up. So that when they go out to do some kind of problem-based work, mm -hmm. they're going to hopefully always be thinking historically, right? Like, how did this come to be how it is? And what law that was passed in the 1970s led to, to this particular moment in time, or right, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So hopefully they're going to always bring their historical thinking to bear on any kind of problem that you're asking them to think about and to potentially offer solutions for. And I find in my classroom that when students are asked to do their own, they get to choose their own topics, they get to do their own research, and then they get to come up with their own solutions. Just yesterday, I had my last class in one of my classes, and they were like, I've never felt so empowered. I'm used to hmm. just always hearing about all the problems. Like, I'm just used to hearing about how messed up our system is and how, you know, unjust everything is. And no one's ever asked me to be like, okay, well, how do you fix it? And it was hard to come up with the fix, but I came up with a couple of cool ideas. And I think they might they might work, and I feel inspired by that. And so yeah. again, it's about empowering students, and it's asking them to get kind of get dirty, but also this doesn't have to be about partisan politics. This just has to be about thinking about power. Right. And students see it all the time, and you, I think it's important for us to equip them to handle it um, in intellectual ways. And I think that's some of the best work we can possibly do. Well said. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I've taken up a lot of your time. So maybe I'll conclude with uh, a final question, which is, you know, most of us who are historians, we generally, you know, learning is a collaborative process. We all acknowledge that. Um, even research is, but the actual writing process is typically not. And I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about what this process was like for the two of you. Um, you know, what sort of challenges did you face and, you know, what, how did this process bear fruit for you? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, I think I can I tell. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, collaborative writing and co-writing, co-authoring 
isn't for everyone. And certainly <laughs> neither of us could do it with everyone. You know, mm. I mean, I think there are there are certain personality types and there are certain, you know, sort of styles that that lend themselves to it. And so part of it's kind of knowing yourself and how you write and, and what you need. So um, I think that that part of that was us working through that together. Um, I think it also really helped that we're not just professional colleagues. And, um, and so when it, I would get stuck and I would send Michelle a text and be like, what do I do? Mm. <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot of support in that process. Um, but I would also say that, that, um, we both were really for, for different reasons, not kind of bound by conventional, um, academic sort of presuppositions mm -hmm. about what counts and what matters. And I yeah. think that that was also sort of a, a release. You know, we weren't trying to please someone else. We were trying to do something that we saw as um, important and, you know, hopefully changing at least one course. So thank you, Josh. Yes. You, <laughs> you admitted that <laughs> it did. did one yes. thing. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, writing is always hard. And I always tell my students that the hardest thing that they can do is write and that that's why professors get sabbaticals and that's why we take time off. And, mm. you know, I talk to them about how difficult it is. And I mean, I think we should talk to each other about that too. And sometimes having someone else's voice in your head as you write um, uh, helps the process along and helps. I, I, I fully believe that the book is 200%. It's not mm. that we each did 50%. Right. Oh, yeah. I like that. I would, yeah. And I would just add that we, we did three things. We laughed. We uh, met deadlines and we forgave each other. <laughs> yes. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but like we had a lot of fun and, um, you know, like it, we, we did, I don't think we missed a single deadline that we had set for each other. And then if we met the deadline and what we sent was maybe not quite what we wanted it to be, we'd just say, you know, hope you can forgive me for this. It's my best attempt at the moment. And we always expected that we were both giving, like she just said, a hundred percent to the effort. And, and in that way, it, it went, it not only went, pretty fast but it was it was full of a lot of joy at least for me and so you know it, it does help that you that we do have a friendship um mm -hmm. but it's also it was also important that we just really were having fun with it you know just right. enjoyed it well i enjoyed it too and i think everyone uh who who picks up a copy will enjoy it so uh emily michelle i want to thank you for being on the show today um that's a wrap for this episode of new books in environmental history thanks so much josh Thank you.